Welcome to another episode of All of the Classics, the show where I interview people about people they are passionate about or have a strong tie to a classic figure. I'm your host, Hope Sears. Today, we're talking about lovable straight man Harvey Corman. He's best known for his roles on The Carol Burnett Show and his roles in several Mel Brooks movies. Now, I sat down to interview his son, Chris Corman, where we talked about his dad not only as a performer, but as a father and a person. Now, we did have some audio issues, and there were a few bits I edited out because I don't want certain things discussed until we can see if things play out. I can't really be more descriptive than that at this time, so I put a few audio transitions in. I hope you enjoy. But I'm happy to talk about my dad, uh, my background in special ed, theater arts, all that. I'm, really, I'm happy to cover whatever it is you want to go. Talk about my experiences about dealing with my special ed issues. All that is fair game. I I don't really know. I've, I've heard a little bit because um, I have been doing some research. I, I know that you had a learning disability. Yes. Uh, it, it, in the clinical diagnosis, it is a delay in the learning process. So it's the retention of information long term. So in my case, I had to read things over and over and over and over again just to be able to retain information. Like if you were to read, if you were to read the first couple of pages of a textbook, it would take you 1.5 seconds to read it. It would take me 17.5 seconds to read it. My delay at the comprehension, it's not that I'm not smart. We fixate on the word disabled too much in this country. Yeah. It's not that we're, I'm unable. I'm, I am able. I just do it at a slower pace than others. That makes sense. And <laughs> you like to think as you get older, you, you learn um, some coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to think I've gotten smarter at my age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had braces on for eight years. I had jaw surgery at the age of 12 to redo or reconstruct a jaw that wasn't much of a jaw to begin with. Um, I had a slight overbite, and so I had surgery to correct the overbite. I told my mother, I said, great, they fixed my mouth, now my brain doesn't work. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I, I had a... Birth, actually. I wasn't even supposed to live. I have thing called highline membrane disease, which is a lack of oxygen to the brain and the central nervous system. I was given 72 hours to live. That's crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm lucky to be here, and that's why I don't take everything that all my blessings, my wife, my son, for granted, because I never thought I would get a second chance, and I, and I like to think I'm making the most out of my second chance. It's, uh, it's definitely tough. I have health problems myself and, uh, I was a, I was a preemie and all that. And so had a bunch of, uh, different health issues and yeah, I agree. It's, you don't want to take stuff for granted. No, you don't. And it's, um, it makes you really appreciate what, I mean, I got married at, later in life and because I think everything happens for a reason. Uh, I'm sure you feel this way about your husband or your somebody in your life. Is you, you say to him, "Go, God, if you only if I only met you five years sooner." Well, 
you weren't ready for that person at five years sooner. You were ready for them at that point in your life when you were able to grasp the concept of what unconditional love is or what a commitment is at that point. So you can wish somebody in your life, but you're not ready for them at, until you're ready for them. So uh, I take that kind of philosophical view. It's a good view to take. And like, I know that uh, uh, your dad was uh, pretty supportive of you trying to um, be the best you. He was. You, you did your homework. I did my um, homework. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that when, when people say, I did your homework on you. I'm like, what homework? What is there out there about me that is so amazing? Uh, it's quite amazing that what is out there that um, there's articles on me. I This is kind of strange. I've been uh, 12 years. I've done probably 70 interviews on the phone or print media or radio in the time he's been, my dad's deceased in 2008. And it's hard to believe at times that people are still so interested in him and I'm his voice now. Sometimes it's a burden, sometimes it's a blessing. Depends on how you look at it. This is a blessing to talk to you, so I'll say that. Oh, thank you. Um, um, I count it as a blessing, so. Well, thank you. You're very kind to say so. Uh, really, I'll tell you, he was his life motto was very simple to me. It's like, you only fail in life, Chris, is when you don't try. Um, and you think that's, in some strange way, that seems overly a Hallmark card sentiment. But he said, I can tolerate you failing, but I can tolerate you as not trying because you might look less than in my eyes. None of us are perfect. We all have weakness and strengths. You have to go towards your strengths and finally your niche in life. Because if you think about it, we are our own poster board. We are our own billboard. We are our own business card. We are a brand of our to ourselves and what you have to sell what you have to offer the world and you, so yeah i always took it that we are our product that we have to sell to the country what is our my value and my dad said you want to be you want to be successful in this world don't give the country what they want give them what they can't live without that's an interesting statement that's an interesting way to look at it that give them yeah you know until I got older. Did I really understand what he meant by that? I always said that it's amazing for somebody who's so astute and so smart, you Asian in life that did not involve wearing women's clothing. It was at this point we had to readjust because, you know, technology and I believe our call got disconnected. There was also trouble hearing audio. So we reconnected and continued the interview. How long have we been doing this for? Um, I started doing it really, like, almost two years ago. I don't have very many episodes. Um, I kind of, you know, it takes a while to get guests and stuff. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not like Mark Malkoff. He's amazing. I don't know how he does it. Uh, I've interviewed Mark. I don't, I still don't know how he does it. Well, I can help you with guests. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite good at um, the art of negotiating, um, networking. I, I used to book a radio show in L.A. 
called TV Confidential. So for five years, I booked everyone from Chaplin Smith to Michelle Lee. Um, so, and I, I mean, it helps that I know these people to a point, indirectly or indirectly, by knowing somebody that knows them, which helps. But it's usually, my pass is usually, hi, I'm Chris Corman, I'm Harvey Corman's son. That usually gets me past most agents or most managers because most of the time the agent, their, their client will say, hey, Chris is a friend of mine, leave him alone, you know, uh, you know, be nice to Chris, you know, so that helps. So depending on who you want, you know, if there's a celebrity or an actor or singer or guy does, I know tons of them that would, um, their agents, you know, if they got something to promote, they want their client out there. So, um, if you think there are people, there's sort of performers or people that you'd be interested in, you think I might know them, or, um, you know, what the topic is, I can help. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll reach out to you on that, uh, sometime. Um, please do. I mean, really, I mean that. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Well, I figured, what, I mean, what is the point of having this kind of name or cachet if I can't use it to help other people? Yeah, that's... That's my, you know, that's kind of, my dad's whole thing was use, use what we have, our name, to help other people because not everybody has your name and you should use it to help other people, but do it in a genuine way. Don't exploit their, their career aspirations for personal gain. I mean, you know, but... Wow, yeah. I, that's that's something I feel like you don't see as much anymore. Oh, I can, I, yes, and it's sad. It really is. People feel the need to hoard resources. They don't want somebody else stepping on their territory. As evidenced yeah. by everybody hoarding toilet paper. Among other things. <laughs> um, A lot of things right now. And, I mean, I live in Vegas. It's just... Um, one of the tough worlds for me to penetrate is the world of special ed. And it's, and, you know, my wife made the point to me, she said, if you start telling people who your father is, they don't, they don't assume that you have $20 million given away. Just go in there and just be Chris Corman. Get them to know you, you know, and as a person, not as the son of. And so I've, it kind of makes sense, you know, it's, because make, people make the assumption, oh, your father's Harvey Corman, so he must be rich and famous, so, you know. Right. You're giving away your time, you're giving away your, your, your name for nothing, like, well. Yeah, it, so. it, it doesn't work that way, like, I mean, for a lot of people, like, I think people have the mistaken assumption that the kids of wealthy people or famous people are, uh, given given everything, and that's that's not always the case. No, it's not. Often, it's not the case. Yeah. I mean, uh, Mel Torme's son is a good friend of mine, and, I, and I'm talking to him, and he said, "You would think I would have an agent by now. You think I'd have this by now? I won't, because people just assume that they already have these things, so they don't ask." And I'm like, "Well." Steve, you don't have an agent? I'm like, why not? I said, well, getting to book an agent, uh, they either think that I'm, I'm my father, 
or and I'm not him. I see him. He's still jazz, and still Steve does big band swing, but he's not his father. He's got his own brand. Mm-hmm. And I said, Steve, you don't have an agent? I said, no. I said, well, let me see how I can help with that. And within uh, four months, I got him a booking agent. What are you doing now, and what what jobs have you had in the past? Well, well, this is it's almost like well, let's say I have worked. I worked for Baltimore County government when I, where I lived, where I met my wife in Baltimore County. Um, it was called Baltimore Office of Community Conservation. So let's say you want to put a soup kitchen in your in your church. My office would help funding for that. If you wanted to redo your house after a, uh, you know, a hurricane came through, or my office would work with your real estate person and your, you know, community with help funding. And that's and I was a receptionist for the government. I worked in retail, and uh, I have a I have associate's degree in elder care. My background is in elder care, taking care of elderly people, which I love because my grandfather who had breathing problem, emphysema, I think they call it. Uh, emphysema, yeah. Yes, and uh, he, he was in Wisconsin for a certain time, and my mom went to go visit him, and I, I was with him, her, and I took care of him for a couple, about a week, and I really loved it. I, I find it just a natural thing for me to, to interact with elderly people, and so, but it's a tough field to get into now. Nowadays, you, they want you to have a social worker's degree, you to be able to run the place. Uh, I'm like, I don't want the burden of that. I just want to be one of the people on the floor. Yeah, that's know? a lot. Um, it's a lot to handle. That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Uh, I can call bingo. I can do room <laughs> visits. I can do exercise groups. I can do a lot of things, but I don't change diapers. I don't change. I don't deal with dispensing medicine. I, I don't, I'm not, um, certified to do that but um and what i've seemed to be doing unless i can find somehow a niche that allows me to do this uh for i don't know eight years ten years now maybe longer um i seem to spend a lot of my time i'm almost like a information broker for entertainers I help them figure out if they need an agent, they need a press person, they need a media person, they need, you know, and I figure out what they need and I hook them up with somebody. So I'm an entertainment, entertainer broker of some kind, or or just layer on. And it's it's a matter of just knowing who the other person on the phone is and knowing how to interact with agents and managers and diplomacy and respect for their privacy, you know. And so I learned... Just basically, just say, look, hey, if your client's got something to promote, let me know, and I'll help them book them on radio shows. And I'm always amazed, to tell you the truth, that these people don't have the access to the people I have access to, because they are, I'm not technically, legally, I don't have a company, I don't have a business, I do this freelance on my own time. And so it's shocking when people say, I don't know, how do you know these people? I'm like, because I'm, I'm out there networking. I'm finding out who people are, who's relevant to talk to. And that's, it's people are afraid to ask for help because they don't want to look like they don't know something. I'm like, that's the first trap. Mm, yeah. 
you can't act like you know it all or you assume somebody else knows it all because nobody will ask the question that needs to be asked. Do you need help? Like I said, my friend Steve Marsh Torme or um, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet's son, David, has a um, CD out about his mother, Edie Gourmet. And I said, David, how are you doing on press? He said, my press person, no, the people that you know, Chris, uh, you know, people, the press people. I said, that's not good, David. Your press person should know the right people to be talking to. She, she should have access to the right media people, radio, TV. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't. And so I'm like, okay, David. I grew up with David because I grew up Steve Lawrence and my father were good friends. And Steve and Evie were dear to me. So doing things for David is like doing something for family. So so I got him interviews, three or four interviews, phone, radio, print media. He's like, Chris, I can't thank you enough for doing all this. I'm like, dude, I saw it to find it hard to believe with your name. You don't have access to the people that I have access to with your name. So it's a trap. It's, a, it's, it's very easy, as you said, to make the assumption that everybody thinks they have the same resources everybody else does, and that's just not the case. Yeah. Um, and that's in every field, to tell you the truth. So, And like I said, I'm writing a book about me and my father, and that was inspired by my wife. She said, I've married, been married to you 17 years. Old, 17 years. Will you please purge yourself of these stories before I have to kill you? And I just wanted to celebrate him. Yeah. For who he was beyond. He was a father first. Mm-hmm. And, uh, an advocate first. And a celebrity second. That's And I wanted to share stories. You know, my wife said, you know, you want to share stories that his fans would know about. And insight about him, who he was as a father. And share great stories about behind the scenes of shows and your experiences with him. And so that's really what kind of really focused on that. So I'm hoping the, this, this, this virus thing gets taken care of and the publisher can get the book out. And I'm working on a second book, hopefully, um, with a great author, Stone Wallace, who is a big on spy novels. He's written 22 books out. Has 20, he's written 22 books. And we're writing a book about straight men like um, Bud Abbott, my father, Carl Reiner, uh-huh. great straight men of oh. comedy. Oh God, I love Carl Reiner. He's he, just you. You you spend ten minutes with Carl. You need a carton of Depends afterwards. <laughs> um, he is truly one of the great great human beings. I've had the honor of knowing God since I was a child. That's 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 crazy. Uh, if if we had video chat like on my desk right here, I actually have a book called "The Why and When the Dick Van Dyke Show Was Born," and it's signed by Carl. Never met him, but it is signed by him, and it's like one of the favorite, mo- my favorite things I own. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. It's, I have so many people in directly connected with that show that I that I know. I mean, Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore. The people who vote on the show, Bill Persky, Gary Marshall, all these people, you know, some of the performers who are on that show, I mean, Carl is just, um, and his, you know, his, Tracy Reiner, mm-hmm. who's Rob Reiner's daughter, and I are friends, and we go back and forth, and I, my love for Carl is just so profound, so it's just, 
and we go back and forth. I'll, she'll talk about my dad. I'll talk about Carl. And it's like, wow. He's just one of the most gracious people, human beings in the world. Just If you met him, you would just you'd fall in love with him instantly. There, there are a lot of people like that in this business who just, on a one-to-one, you get to know them beyond who they are as people, as artists. Mm-hmm. And they really, deep down, are just Peter Marshall from Hollywood Squares is a dear friend of mine. It's sometimes you, you talk to him and you go, my God, you've been doing this for 40, 50 years. It's like, and you're still doing it. <laughs> and so if you love what you do, it's hard to just stop doing it. Yeah. So most people love your dad's work and know him from Carol, the Carol Burnett show and um, Mel Brooks movies. How did your dad get started in entertainment, though? He, uh, wow, he started, he... He started doing uh, industrial films and, and, ch- and children theater at the age of 10. He lived, he's from Chicago. He, went, he did theater in high school and college. And then he, he went to uh, Goodman Theater in Chicago, which is now DePaul. Mm-hmm. And he got on a GI Bill in 1950. And he studied, he studied the classics. He was going to be a... Well, he says he wanted to be the next Olivier. And it seemed apropos, considering he met Olivier sometime not too after he did Burnett Show. But he was going to be a great dramatic actor. He did all the classics. And then all of a sudden, he started doing comedy. And then he got pigeonholed. When he came out at 16 with my mother, he did George Skelton. He did Munsters. He did Lucy. He did he did four Munsters. He did a Route 66 with Perry Mason. Jack Benny, so he got kind of typecast doing comedy, uh, which I think was always kind of a bit of his resentment that he didn't get the opportunity to, to, to do it all. Uh, you think if you ask a lot of actors, if I could have just done this role, or if I could mm-hmm. just done this, people would not have stereotyped me. And I think a lot of actors like that, like John Ritter or Larry Hagman, they get famous for one genre, mm-hmm. and follows them their whole life. So my dad, my dad's. We jokingly will say my 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 Caskey would say Carol Burnett, Mel Brooks, and Tim Conway. And for those who might not know this, he was the voice of the Great Gazoo on the Flintstones. Yeah. <laughs> so you do that. Yeah. Uh, he's actually this is a bit of, of history that most people don't know. He is the only actor, performer in the history of show business that is linked to every. Flintstone related product. Wow. The video games, the movies, the voiceovers for, for the movie. Uh, he was in the live action movies, both of those movies. Uh, the serial commercials. So he's the only one directly connected to every Flintstone related product out there. Um, which is weird because he, he only did 13 episodes. Yeah. And a lot of these things the Flintstones, and it turned into this incredible pop culture thing. And it's amazing people know him as much from the Flintstones as he does as they do Carol Burnett or Blazing Saddles, which yeah. always astounded him that people <laughs> knew his. Like, where body. have I heard this voice before? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But his voice is kind of distinctive to a voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People go, oh, that's, that's got to be her. I'm like, yeah, that's mm-hmm. my dad. Um, yeah. But 
I mean, I, I will not say this. I'm not saying this to be mean or anything, but I think my dad, if he prefer, preferred that he wouldn't necessarily, and he loves Carol, he loves Mal, he loves Tim, but I think if he had his druthers, he probably would have preferred not being associated with three people, but just say he was an all-around great artist who could do it all and work with everybody, given what it is. He's blessed that he had Carol and Mel and Tim in his life, mm -hmm. well, personally, professionally, because beyond the, who they were as performers, with each other generally as people, and that helped. If you're going to be with somebody and you're performing with them 16, 18 hours a day, you better get you better get to know them, like them, because that's not always the case. <laughs> that is that is true. <laughs> It's a, uh, it's, it can be a nasty environment if you don't enjoy it. He did a play called Mr. and Mrs. in Chicago, and one of the writers, Seymour Burns, who worked with Benny, got my dad on the Danny Kay shows, and my dad did four years on Danny Kay, and then they said, when Danny Kay went off the air, Carol saw him in the parking lot and mugged my father over a hood of a car, <laughs> which is one way to get a job these days, I guess. She's like, we gotta do, you gotta do our show. You gotta do our show. My dad did. My dad was unemployed probably for probably about two weeks or three weeks there. Uh, it was very short because Danny Kay went, went off in '67. I was I was born that year, so you could do the math how old I am. And Carol said, you know, we're putting the show together. They didn't think it was gonna last. Hope CBS gave it yeah. maybe 13 weeks. And Carol said, let's just have fun. Lyle and Vicky, my dad, let's just mm -hmm. have fun. And the audience will sense that. They'll come over on the screen that we're just having fun. And they went on for 11 years, but my dad was on for 10. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people don't know this. This is for those who are TV historians. My dad left to do his own show in 77. But ironically, he was up for the role of Merle Steubing on Love Boat. He, for some reason, he didn't want to do 16-hour, 18-hour days on a one-camera shoot. But he could have <laughs> been the captain of the Love Boat. Which is ironic because the Love Boat is the show that knocked the Brunetto off the air oh. in '77. His best friend was on that show, Bernie Coppell. For those who know that name, Siegfried on Get Smart played Adam Bricker. So you, your dad was born in Chicago, and so it sounds like he got um, noticed by some Jack Benny writers. Is that what you were saying? He, uh, Jack Benny writers and the, the um, Perry Lafferty, who was president of CBS at the time, had said, look, we got this guy, Danny Kay, who's really great, and he'd seen, and that's how he got Jack Benny, because he'd saw him in Skelton, and he did a Jack Benny, and all of a sudden CBS is going, hey, you know, this guy is really a great straight man. He might work out with Danny Kay. And so my dad kind of cut his teeth on sketch comedy so you know he met my mother through the play in Chicago she was an ad model at the time and they need models for this play called Mr. and Mrs. written by Seymour Burns who mm -hmm. went on right for Jack Benny and Skelton and all those guys so you know everything is fortuitous everything is I guess kismet I guess they were they used kismet or karma and so my dad and my mom came out in 60, and he just started getting work. And before he knew it, if you look at his IMBD page, he worked a lot early in the 60s. And 
but Burnett Show was his biggest. Mm-hmm. The 10 years on the Burnett Show probably put him over the top. And, of course, the Mel Brooks movies, so. Yeah. With Jack, Jack Benny was born in Waukegan, which isn't too far from Chicago. Do you think, like, your dad uh, uh, found this connection, kind of, with with Benny through that Midwesterners and oh wow that's possible you know you make a really good point I didn't really think about that Bob Newhart is from Chicago Dick Van Dyke is from Chicago Ken Berry Betty White they're all from the Chicago area mm-hmm. I guess there's a connection between Chicago Midwestern and comedy it's just it's just inherently connected I don't know why but my dad loved that Benny and the first time he worked with him he said Oh, so, oh, Mr. Benny, it's such an honor to work with you. And Jack is like, call me, call me Jack. My dad said, you're, an, you're, you're a god. I could never call you Jack. My dad revered Jack so much. And I told Jack Benny's daughter that. I said, well, your father, my father loved your father a lot, too. And that's amazing to hear that. That's uh, incredible. Yeah, it is. It, it's flattering to talk to these people who my dad worked with to find out their fathers were fans of my fathers, which is sometimes well wow. It's like amazing that these people who are giants to my father, gods, knew who he was, Gary Grant and all these people and they would see them and they and they'd go, Oh, we love your work and my dad and Carol both were so starstruck to these performers. It always struck them funny that all these big Hollywood gods knew who these people were. And Anthony, and he became friends with Anthony Hopkins before my dad died. And Hopkins was a fan of his. And it just blew my father's mind that these people, Burt Lancaster, and all these famous people knew who my father was. And it just blew his mind. But you have to think about this. TV is a very intimate medium. Mm-hmm. Carol Burnett's coming to your TV screen like John Carson once a week. They're part of your family. Where a movie mm-hmm. is, you go see a movie. But at home, you make a connection with these people in a way you don't make with movie stars or you know musicians. So it's a very intimate connection that people make. Um, and they, it's like soap operas. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like you're part of the family because you watch it every day. You get to know these characters. So, do you think that that's part of the reason you're you? I know that from doing some some looking that you, you say your dad wasn't really a fan of breaking up. But do you think that's why some people connect with it even more? Because it's like breaking the fourth wall and laughing with everybody. I think you just nailed it. I think that's exactly why. I think that's why um, my my wife found it endearing. A lot of people, it made the performer more accessible to the audience. It related, it made him more relatable to people. It wasn't, hey, I'm a performer, I'm above you. It was, I'm laughing. Now, my father would be the first one to tell you he hated the breaking up, um, the breaking of the fourth wall, unless it's intentional or that's the format. The performer should not break the fourth wall. I will not go on a tirade about that (laughs) uh, because I could. But I found, I, I found it annoying that my dad broke up as much as he did. I found that 
breaking up another performer on purpose is just, to me, unprofessional. Because you think about it, the crew has to know what where to have the mic. The crew has to know where the camera angles have to be. If you upstage the actor, you're upstaging the crew, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's why it's, it's TV is a very inclusive process. Everybody has to be on the same page. Right. So when Tim broke up my dad, unless he made a deal with the cameraman or the sound man, the cameraman has to react to what, mm-hmm. what the director is telling him. Well, if there's a surprise, now if I need to bring up to his three, his three camera, they can cover. But mm-hmm. it was, the first show was always for Tim. The first show was, let's get it in the can. The second show was, let Tim do whatever he wants. But my dad's relationship with Tim is what it is. It's, it's iconic. But if it made you, my wife, and people who go to the Burnett show, make my father feel like they could go up to him in a store or a restaurant and make him more approachable, then it's worth it. As a person. Um, and that's, I think that's more valuable and more important than what my personal diatribes are about breaking up. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it did absolutely... 100% what you said is true. I think it broke the fourth wall for the audience. So, it's hard to argue with that kind of success. I mean, people would not remember you 40, 50 years later for the work that you did. I mean, the uh, majority I the majority of it is, is not breaking up. It, that's true. Yeah. It's just, that's the one I feel like people remember because it's uh, it's so memorable, the, what's happening. It is, because it's the immediacy. Yeah. It happened at that moment. It's, I mean, they made cuts and they edited it. So if you watch the show, you're watching two different shows edited together. So you didn't, you wouldn't know what mm-hmm. was not in or not in the first show. It was in the second show. They made cuts. You wouldn't know it. It looks like they did one show and everything went well. Yeah. Uh, that's not the case. Yeah. He always said, the great thing about variety or sitcoms is you work from September to May. It was like a school year. Mm-hmm. You had three months off and you could do whatever you want. So my dad, in between, when he did wasn't doing Burnett Show, he would do Huckleberry Finn. He did other films on his break. We'd go on vacations together. Most people don't know. I had a golf tournament with my father for 22 years for people with special ed for a school in Los Angeles called the Marion Frostick School for children with learning disabilities. And we raised scholarship funds for 22 years. And so from the age of about four, I've been, I've been public speaking. I've been in the public eye probably for 46 years. Wow. So, and um, speaking in front of 2,000, 3,000 people every year. Uh, so audiences don't scare me. If I have to do it, I'll do it. Uh, it's not the first thing I want to do when I wake yeah. up in the morning. Go speak to <laughs> people. But if it's for a good cause, I will yeah. do it. So to have my name on a golf tournament for 22 years is uh, shared with Frank Gavilon, the Smothers Brothers, Wayne Rogers, um, and to meet Clint Eastwood. That was mind-blowing. To meet Clint Eastwood. Oh, my God. You want to talk about one of those moments where you just go stupid. <laughs> Only seconds, and I'm in a golf cart with him, and his good friend of mine was a good friend of mine, Scott Rickard, who yeah. who my son is named after. He's a comedian, 
And he said, okay, I go pick up somebody in his car and take him to the golf course. I said, oh, okay, who is it? It's like, Clint Eastwood. I'm like, Scott, get out of here. So we drive up, and there's Clint Eastwood standing there. Hey, Scott, what's up? He said, this is my friend, Chris Corman. I'm like, uh I'm like a babbling brook. I don't know what to say. He gets in the golf cart, and now I'm staring at him. He turns over and says, it's nice to meet you. I heard a lot about you from Scott Record. He told me I had to come to your tournament. Wow. I didn't know what to say of that. Yeah. I was like, what? And the strangest thing, uh, we talked about everything but him. We talked about jazz, his love for jazz, my love for jazz. And we went back and forth for about maybe 10, 15 minutes. And in the end, he said, you were like, you really love, yeah, you have great love for jazz. I said, I was really impressed that you knew the same people that I knew, the great Artie Shaw and all the great uh, you know, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. So it's like, I can't believe I'm conversing with Clint Eastwood about jazz. Like, someone shoot me, please. <laughs> like, pinch me and make sure I'm alive. And afterwards, he shook my hand and said, it's a great honor to you. Let's talk later. I'm like, huh? Like, I didn't know what to say after that. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, he went out and said, how, how much you love my father and went back and forth. And all I wanted to do was go back to talk to talking about jazz and how he used jazz in his movies. And I was just, I was just dumbstruck that I was, I got to meet somebody like that. Um, but it was just so gracious and just so kind and so wonderful to talk to. And those are the experiences, you know, being his, being his son that makes me go, this is a very incredible life I've led. So I think the good outweigh the bad when it comes to being a son. Um, doing podcasts like this for you is a plus. Oh, thank you. If I can talk to people who generally want to talk about him as a person, more as a performer, or, or a balance of both, I appreciate that more than people who just want to talk about this Carol or my dad or Tim, you know, that you got, you wanted to ask him about him as a person, and I appreciate that more than anything. Um, because not everybody wants to talk about that part. They always want to talk about the show business part. And who he was as a person is as important as who he was as an artist, if not more so. I honestly really enjoy groups uh, on Facebook. I found you through the Jack Benny group, and um, man, right. I really love that group. It's a it's a lot of fun. It is a great group, and when I went on there, I was kind of I was to tell you the truth. I went on there to, to praise Jack Benny, <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out I spent most of the, the first two or three days um, responding about my father. And which is humbling, but I, that was not my intention. My intention was to self serving and saying, look how great my father was. The point was to go on there and talk about how great Jack Benny was. Right. Um, and but when I once I said who I who I was, it was like, oh my God, Chris, what an honor to talk to you. I'm like, no, I'm thinking it's my honor to talk to you folks because yeah. you guys embraced me. It wasn't the other way around. Because I'm always appreciative when people are kind to me about groups because. It's very easy to go in those groups and, and spew out your personal opinion, and you don't know how people are going to take it. So I'm very mindful that I never come across, like, whatever my opinions are, they're my opinions. They weren't of my father's. Mm -hmm. That They're talking to me, not my father. And whatever I say is not, it's not 
filtered through who he was, or what he thought or felt. Either my father and I had different opinions about different things. And we could argue in the car for an hour about everything. And we would have, we would respect each other's opinions. But on Facebook, you gotta be careful. Mm-hmm. You get, I never want to come off like Jack Benny's page as elitist or arrogant. Hollywood snob kid. I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad I joined the Jack Benny page. I joined the Perry Mason page too. Because my dad did a Perry Mason. And my stepfather was an actor too. And um, he was a well known actor um, for 40 years before he died in 2020. He, was on a, he, was, he worked with Perry Mason, Raymond Burke, quite a few times. His name was George Ticenzo. And most people would know him as um, Vincent Bugliosi, the guy who prosecuted Manson in the Helter Skelter movie. That's who George played. Oh, okay. So, and he was the voice of Hordak and Sh- Hordak and Bo on She-Ra. And he was in Back to the Future 1. He's the one that hits Michael J. Fox with the car in Back to the Future 1. <laughs> That's my stepfather. Nice. So, I have so many connections on Facebook that cross-references my dad and George, which is weird to be on the Perry Mason page. So, you had a lot of uh, people that were in theater and and acting. So, did you ever, um, did you ever take their processes and... Is there any process that you've used that stands out to you? Like anything that you learned acting wise that stood out? I, did, uh, I, I don't have great. The thing about doing theater, you have to have great short term, long term memory. Mm-hmm. And I mean that by just that if you have to do a show, let's say in high school, and you have to do a play for two weeks, you have to memorize a lot of lines fast because you have to be off the book. What I mean by off the book is the director expects you not to be on script after a week. So my dad said, like, if you have a retention problem, how are you going to learn short-term, long-term dialogue? I said, well, I can take chunks of it, and I can say the lines into a tape recorder, because that is the biggest part of my disability, which is retention information. So if I had to take chunks of eight pages, 10 pages, 12 pages, I would take five pages at a time. My dad said, you retain it quicker if you hear it back and you you can see if you can recite a good portion of it and then go back to the tape recorder and see how close you got. So you go back and forth. So I did all my dialogue on a tape recorder. Then I would try to go and I would try to see if I could say it and then go back to the tape recorder and see how close I was. And and that is one of the things my dad taught me was for no other reason, not just the inclusion, inclusiveness of the year, you learn compromise. You learn how to work with other people, but more important, you need the ability to retain information in the short term, long term. Now I remember stuff that I should never, never remember. Memories in my head. <laughs> I can remember dialogue from plays. I can, I can, I can recall names because of that skill. My dad taught me. He had to memorize 30, 100 pages, whatever it was, per week for the Burnett show, and they had cuts. So from Monday to Friday. They got a new script, so they had to rememorize and forget this stuff, then memorize new stuff, and then forget that stuff. So you're purging your brain of information daily. So 
you have to have a short-term memory, long-term memory skill set if you're a performer, especially in variety. Because if it cuts daily, weekly, yeah, it happens. That's probably that's probably why you don't see a lot of variety shows, although there's uh, anymore. But there were some good ones back then. That's true. Um, and the other problem is that people are people in college and high school. They're not taught the skill set of writing a seven to eight minute sketch that has a plot, that has character, that has conflict, that has that has a plot. Mm-hmm. And because it's easier, obviously, it's a lot easier to write a movie than it is to write a, a seven minute sketch. I don't know how that's possible, but how do you make it interesting? How do you have a beginning, middle, and end? How do you make it interesting? How do you, you know, so. The skill set, and it's also the, the networks. They don't know what to do. They, there aren't there. There are performers out there who can do variety. It's I think it's just the cost of it. Right. You have to find out post per week. You have to you know, unless you do an anthology one. You do one every month or every twice a month. Mm-hmm. You just do a rotating with host. But people are just not writing. Yeah. For writing that form anymore. It's sad but true. Yeah. But. Anyways, um, yeah, do you, uh, and I, I think I heard somewhere that you, you like Dean Martin as well. I'm a oh, big, I'm uh, a big Dean Martin fan, so I appreciate that. I got to know his daughter, Dina, and his other daughter, Gail. Her, um, her husband is Mike Downey. He's a great L.A. sports writer for the Dodgers. And I said to him, I said, you're married to Gail Martin? He said, yeah. I said, please tell her how much I loved her father. And Gail was in the room, and he heard. She heard him say, "You're Harvey Korman's son." And Gail said, "Tell Chris how much we love his father." So we went back and forth for like 20 minutes. And That's I said, really cool. My dad dated Dean Martin Morris, and I got to meet Dean Martin once before he died. And I, I gushed with Mike about his his father-in-law. And Gail and I went back and forth from 20 minutes to her husband. And finally, her husband said, would you two just talk? <laughs> just, just you two. <laughs> if you want to call Gail, just, I'm like, okay, yeah. I don't want to bother her. But so we both loved your father so much. And I said, well, my father adored Dean, and I adored your father. It's Dean Martin, beyond words. It's, it's probably the most surreal part of being a son is that you get access to people that you never thought you would meet in your lifetime, and all of a sudden you're conversing with them. And you're finding out that they are as much of a lover of your father as you are of them. And um, that's probably the most shocking part about being a son is that I get to converse with people. I would not have ever met him. Not, he'd not been my father. Uh, I, have his, I have his golden globe here right in front of me. He, he dedicated it to me. World's greatest son. 1974. That's really sweet. So that is one of the most treasured things that I have in my life. Yeah. So. Um, That's really sweet. So, it is. It is. It's a, it's a great thing to have, and I wasn't expecting it. He got home. And he, he, looked, he gave it to me, and I, I didn't know what to say. I was like, "Wow." I know that your dad worked with uh, some of your comedy idols, like Robin Williams. Like. Oh yes. How how did that come about? This is one of those things. In 87, 
Carol had put together a special with Robin Williams, Carl Reiner, Carol. It was Carol, Carl Reiner, Whoopi Goldberg, and Robin Williams. I did 87, so I was 20. Uh, I don't think Dad had any premonition that he was going to direct many. He had directed some old new Dick Van Dyke shows. He had directed the first two seasons of Mama's Family. He had directed a variety special on his own time. So he, I, I don't know where this came. He said, Carol called him and said, I'm doing this special um, about laughter and about comedy. And it's vignettes, a little comedy, sketches, moments, brief moments with me and Carl and Bobby Goldberg and Rob Williams. And as soon as she said Rob Williams, my dad said, no. Because he knows Robin's reputation for being all over the place would be crazy and not easy to control. And my dad said, Carol, no, no, really, I have no business in directing. I, I've directed, I've worked with you and Carl. I've never worked with Whoopi. I never worked with Carl, Robin. I'm not sure that's a great fit. I was like, come on, Harvey. You know comedy better than anybody. I think if I know Rob, I don't want to stifle Robin. And she told my dad, like, Rob would love to work with you. You're one of his idols. So I'm like, what? So my dad couldn't believe that. So I did said, okay. So he directed this incredible special. It's on YouTube. If I find it, I'll send it to you. Um, it's called Carol Carl Whippy, and it did actually do very well. She shot it at CBS, where they did the Burnett show. It was on ABC. It was, for some reason, they tried CBS, but it was on ABC. And it did number seven for the week. Seventh best show of the week. So my dad couldn't really believe that he was working with these big, huge stars. And this funny story, I brought one of my best friends with me to the show. Scott Marshall from high school. And we're sitting in the front row to the left of the stage. And his Carl Robbins manager was sitting in front of me. And I was lamenting all week. I said, Scott, my dad was so afraid of working with Robin because, you know, Robin is such a great improv person. And my dad didn't want to stifle his energy and his creativity. And Robin's agent turned around and said, you're full of crap. I said, what? I said, you're, Robin was the one that was afraid of your dad. I said, what? I said, Rob idolizes your father, Chris. I'm like, Robin Williams idolizes my father? Really? It's like, wow. Okay. I said, your father is an icon in this business, Chris. I said, Robin would really just was forward to work with your dad. I said, well, my dad was had trepidation the whole week because he didn't want to, you know, pull Robin off. You know, you got to let Robin do his thing. You want to stifle that energy and that creativity. But Robin was very amenable to my dad the whole week, and they, and they were very professional with each other. And Robin would try things. My dad said, let's try this, and let me try this. Let's try that. Let's see if this works. And the Robin and my dad got along all week. It got along great. But my dad just really could not believe he was working with Robin Williams. And I met Robin Williams afterwards, and he was so gracious. He said, I love working with your dad. He was so much fun to work with one of my idols. I said, well, you've been my idol. You and John Ritter were my idols, comedy idols. My whole, our whole, my whole life, my generation is Robin Williams and, and John Ritter. And um, so it was a, it's a very interesting uh, generational thing we go through. I grew up with Fruit Company. I grew up with Ron Williams, whatever. My dad grew up with Jack Benny and all those people. So to hear Ron Williams say, oh, your father was one of my idols, it was kind of just like, wow. I, 
kind of really kind of got it at that point how big my father really was. You know, it was like you don't really put into perspective until you hear people who are as big as your father is in a different generation say your father was one of their idols. And so that was that was one of the surreal moments in your life to meet Ron Williams, and he was very charming. And the first thing he says to me as I walked up to him with my friend, I said, you must be Harvey's son. I said, why? I said, no one else would have that nose. <laughs> I said, okay, well, thank you, Mr. Williams. You are one hairy son of a, you know what? I said, yeah, I know. His arms are, he's like, he's hairier. Like, he's like a, he's like a bear. His <laughs> arms are covered in hair. I said, you can make a sweater out of your arms. He's <laughs> like, yeah, I know. It's quite pathetic if you think about it. Um, so that's one of those times where my dad, you know, he, he goes, I can't count my blessings. I would not have worked with these people, you know, my standing in the business. So he's glad he did it. And he loved working with Carl. He loved working with Carol because he worked with Carol and Carl a lot on the Burnett show. But working with Whoopi and working with Robin, which my father was like, oh, I've really made it if I'm working with people like this. And that's kind of how that all worked out. So he didn't seek it out. He didn't even know it was happening until Carol called him. You know, it's one of those moments where you just, you don't expect things like that to happen. Yeah. Mind-boggling. Uh, you know, John Ritter and my father were very dear friends. Um, I can tell you I've known John. God, I knew John since I was 10. They did Love Boat together. They did a Mary Tyler Moore special together. John and my dad were very dear friends, and his second wife, Amy Yazbeck, and my dad worked on a Mel Brooks movie together. So my dad was close to his second wife, Amy, and his first wife, Nancy. They did a movie together called America Thon. So John and my, and my dad were very, very close. And John Ritter was another person that was so dear to me mm -hmm. um, as a person. I mean, just outside of who he was as an artist, you know, um, just one of the most charming I mean when you were with him you always had a sense that you were the star in the conversation it wasn't about him and that came to the conclusion that people who are secure in their fame don't have to take focus they let other people they, they allow themselves to be the second to be the interviewer they allow themselves to be not the center of, of attention and that's rare these days everybody's so into themselves and it's all about them and people like my father and John Ritter were about you. They didn't talk shop. They didn't want to talk shop. They didn't talk about their business, their career, their process. Their process. It was about you. They wanted to get to know you as a human being. Because to them, that was more interesting than talking about or analyzing their performances. My dad and John weren't like that. So it's a... So being around John Ritter was just oh my god, you had a carton. You need to have a carton of depends with you. Hmm. Um, and yeah, he died way too young too. Yeah. Um, and um, Betty White, who I've known, God, God, at least since I was ten. So it's, I've known Betty White for forty-two years. 
she and my dad did a, a sitcom together and worked together so long. And, um, Ken Berry, who just recently died not too long ago, was very dear to me. And and that's my Connor dramatics. These are people I've never, I got to know beyond the stage. And um, got to know got to know as people. So that's that's really cool. And you you get to meet um, comedians that like are are is your experience with comedians are they? I know sometimes they get the reputation that they're kind of miserable offstage, but was that your experience with comedians? There is, it's funny you ask that. There is a unusual dynamic about people who, who go into comedy. They usually had tragic childhoods. You know, Brooks's father left early. He, you know, a lot of comedians go into comedy because it's it's cathartic. They put all that energy. Into, or grief into their comedy, it, it allows them to purge whatever that their souls ache. So I find a lot of comedians, when a lot of actors, comedians go into the business because for some strange reason, whatever validation they can get from their family, they got from their audience. They got it from the people in the in the, in the studio audience. Um, you know, my dad's mother died before my dad really made it big. And if you ever saw the character my dad used to do on the character, show, Mother Marcus, mm. the woman in drag, that's basically my grandmother. The whole Jewish, the walking, the way he held his hand, the way he talked, that was his mother. This very gregarious, outgoing, loving, playful, silly person. And so for my father, playing Mother Marcus was cathartic for him. He was, so I think, yeah, I think a lot of comedians that performers like my father. Uh, Mel Brooks, um, a lot of them go into comedy because it's it's a lot healthier than sitting on a couch with a, with a therapist. Yeah. Um, and it does more for your wallet when you've got money coming in and going out. Uh, if you have to pay for a therapist, that's one thing. But if you can find a positive channeling of that energy, um, it's because... What happens is my father got to go to work five days a week, got to do his thing, and then got to go from home. Whatever those negative energies that he had inside him, he purged into his performance. Then he could come home and be a father to me and my sister Maria and be a husband to my mother. So my mom was always so glad that my father had an outlet for that because when it was time for him to be a father on the weekend or during the summer vacations, his focus was being a father, not being an artist. So you had if you performers find that balance, which I think is healthy for everybody. I think. Yeah, yeah. Finding a balance is, uh, I feel like one of the hardest things in life is just finding that balance. Of, it is. Yeah. It's another thing is you can also get get caught up with letting what you do define you instead of it just being one aspect of your life. My father, again, to go back to what I said before, he knew how to balance between being a father and being a celebrity. Uh, father first, advocate first, celebrity second. Because at, at the end of the day, he said, I want to be, I want to, I want to, want, I want to be remembered as a great father 
great husband before I'm known as anything else. So that should tell you a lot about who my father was as a person. That's his Midwestern upbringing. Yeah. Walking. So. Yeah, uh, that's very healthy, a uh, very healthy outlook. And sadly, some, uh, you, you see a lot of uh, celebrities that don't have that kind of outlook. But I believe uh, they're, I believe they're out there. They're just not making the headlines, you know? No, my father was, um, all celebrities are, if you have to tell somebody you're in the room, to let me know how important you are, then you're not that important. Yeah. You should let your resume speak for itself. That's, that's true. So your dad had this outlet with the Carol Burnett show and uh, just going and performing. Um, I know I was listening to Carol's book and she has a story in it about firing your dad. Do you have any insight into that story? Well, the only thing I can talk about is that Petula Clark, the uh, singer, I think she is Australian. Uh, and, Car- and Tim Conway was on that weekend. My father, who was going through, I guess, a bad time with my divorce and my mom or personal upheaval. Mm-hmm. And you don't insult anybody on Carol's show. You don't do that on Carol's show, period. If you have a problem, you go to the producer and say, I have a problem. So he insulted supposedly Tim or Joel Clark about a sketch. And basically, Carol said, Harry, you're not happy here. You don't have to be here. I mean, we all, we're all used to your mood swings, and, but you don't insult a guest. And I said, I'll give, you, I'll, give you, I'll give you a caveat here. I said, let's do this. Uh, I'll come Monday for the first reading of the next week's show. If I see you, I want you come. If I see you coming off that elevator, I want you whistling and happy. If I see you miserable and and then you know, then we're gonna need to talk. So she put on his dressing room door as a joke or a little needle on the arm, saying, "Hey, I'm reminding you about this mood." She called him Mr. Happy Go Lucky, and she put that on his door just to remind him. No more crankiness from Mr. Corman. And from then on, I mean, but, you know, everybody's moody. My dad yeah. had a high expectation of professionalism, but you know what? There's a constructive way to say, to express your unpleasantness. There's a positive way. And, you know, even though Carol treated like it's everybody's show, her name is on the show, her reputation was online. But you don't insult anybody on Carol's show. Did you have a problem? go to Joe, her husband, or you go to Carol and say, this isn't working, the guest isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing or whatever, but you do not insult the guest. And that story's been told so many times, it's, it's, it's gotten a legend on it to itself. But, um, you know, but to be fair, you know, um, people go through things, personal things, mm-hmm. you just don't bring your personal problems to work, or your mood swings, and my dad had them, like a lot of people have them. But, you know, we didn't know um, many years later before he died, he, they found a brain tumor in his head. So those mood swings could have been caused by that, and we didn't know it. Because a brain tumor does cause mood swings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actors in general have mood swings, so we didn't right. know it. Well, just, my dad just being normally 
cranky because that's what actors are cranky the kind of childlike in general so before he died we found out like he said we had a brain tumor so that certainly explains a lot why he could have been very a very moody person yeah that i can honestly say how whatever insecurities he might have had as a performer or as a father he never let them impede his ability to do the best work possible as a person as a professional he had his moments like everybody mm-hmm. but he was very diligent and very aware and he would be apologetic if he was wrong yeah and he owned up to his own crap when he called on the carpet for him both personally and professionally i called him on the carpet when he was wrong with me and anybody else could but he did it in a way that said hey look i know we really appreciate you saying that doing that and he could respond to that honestly but if you scream and yell at somebody they're not going to want to talk to you right so um and like so, i i don't mean to imply that he was like no. that or anything i it's no. hard to even imagine because everybody does go through stuff like i know there's probably days at work that i'm not the pleasantest but yeah it's, it's, it's that's that's life it is and at my dad's memorial i just said to carol um those 10 years was some if not the most glorious 10 years of my dad's professional not just because of the success he achieved but because it was because it, it was with you and his love for you is unfathomable carol and she gave me a big hug and kiss and i said i really appreciate that and i said well you have a place in my heart that is not occupied by anybody either. She had draw surgery on her draw too, as, as I did. And um, she shared that experience with me. And the horrors of going through that. And she didn't have to, and she did. She just one of the most dearest people in my life. I had to talk to her daughter, Jody, periodically on Facebook. Um, just truly, I mean, one of those on my hands I can count that you know in a pinch if I need somebody she'd be there um but because of that I don't tra- I don't trade on that relationship you know it's one of those sacred relationships that you have mm-hmm. you know I mean it's the same thing with, it's the same thing with Peter Marshall I've known Peter since I was five if I go to his wife Lori I'll just say hey what's going on with Peter I mean is he doing interviews He's, he's, you know, he's in his late 80s. So I really don't bother Peter with stuff. Mm-hmm. Or Corbass. Because there's that fine line between personal and professional consideration. As much as he loves me and he's very dear to me, I would never exploit that. Uh, I'm very mindful of that. I mean, uh, I had him write the foreword to my book because he offered it, because he loved my father. Um, because in the 80s, my dad was offered to do um, a national tour Jerome, um, uh, Jerry Herman's La Cause of Fall. It turned out to be the movie Bird Cage with Ron Williams and Nathan Lane. Mm. Um, and my dad was offered the role of that Robin Williams played in Bird Cage, the George character. Okay. Not the crossbreaker. And my dad, at this point, was about to have his third child. This is 82, I think. And my dad said, I, I can't. I don't want to do a year play playing the same role. My dad did not like playing one role. He hated it. He liked playing varieties. He loved doing variety shows. And he didn't want to do the same show for a year. So he said to the producers, why don't you have Peter Marshall? Because he's got a much better voice than I do. And 
would do this. He'd do a great job with this role. So when I told Peter this, when I was over at Peter's house, he always said, "If I had not met, I would not have met Peter had your father passed on this show." So everything happens for a reason. It's karma, I guess. Kismet, not karma. I don't know. But um, so you know, I said I. So every time I see Lori, I said I truthfully say to her. I think it's not only that just because my dad didn't want to tour for a year, it's that I think he didn't do shows directly conducted with the word cross-dressing anymore. <laughs> yeah. And she laughed at that, but, um, yeah, it's like, um, like anything, it's like you, you, learn, you learn boundary lines. So I will call Peter, I'll just call Lori and say, how are you Peter doing with this CV? Thing. How you guys doing? I love you both. I hope everything is fine. But I will not nag him about a personal favor unless I have to. And I don't see myself having to. He was very kind to, like I said, to do my foreword on my book. Uh, kindness to, to me because it's all for my father. Um, but, and that's another strange thing is, you know, uh, Mel Brooks is up there in age, and I had called him a couple of years after Anne had died, and Bancroft, his wife, died, mm-hmm. and he, um, I thanked him for the tickets he got to the producers from my wife and I, and I said, well, I just want to thank you, Mel. He's like, where, where are you going? I said, well, I don't want to bother you. He's like, Chris, you could never bother me. You have no idea what that's like to hear Mel Brooks say, you could never bother me. Yeah. Anytime you need anything, Chris, just call me. I'll have my assistant put you through. That's so anytime I call him, I'm like, hope, I'm like, I'm like, there's part of me that doesn't want to call him. There's part of me that says I wouldn't call him unless there was a good reason. So I said to Kristen, his assistant, like, if he's, if he's busy, fine, I'll just leave a message. No, 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 Chris, I'll put, I'll put you through. <laughs> Hi, Mel. Hi, Chris, how are you? I'm fine. How's Trish? How's Scott? I'm like, more wonderful. Everything is great. I don't want to bother you. He's like, Chris, if you have need, I just call that's um, that's amazing. That is truly amazing. So, Chris, this might come to a shock to you, but I love you. I tolerate your father. <laughs> he always says that in a funny way. Yeah. Because he, he loved his father as much as anybody. And he said, your father was one of the great, if not the best, comedic talents I've ever worked with. And certainly one of the great, great, greatest straight men in the business. And that's saying a lot, considering Carl Reiner is, I can, my dad considered Carl the best. And Carl always considered my father the best straight man, comedian. So there's a, there's a mutual admiration in that world. Um, but yeah, that's that's really the surreal part of being his son is being access, having access to people that you normally would not have access to if somebody had not loved my father. So they they like me is a bonus. But your dad, I mean, I think it also goes. They're willing to help because your dad was always, seems like he was willing to help for um, other people and also to help, like, good causes. And he did, yes. That's another thing. Is if you called up, like, you know the reputation Don Rickles has for being an insult comedian. Let me tell you, you called up Don and asked for him for $20,000. The check would be on your, on your desk in 20 minutes. Don't let the insult part of Don Rickles for you. 
he was one, one, one of the most magnanimous people. Um, he would give, Johnny Carson gave money to my foundation for many years. I didn't know it. I just saw Carson Foundation on, on the letterhead mm-hmm. of people who gave to, to my golf tournament. And I got to meet Johnny Carson once. And um, it's, I think it's important to know that people, when it comes to charities, and you genuinely come to them and say, won't you help me help somebody else? I think they're more apt to help if they think that you're doing it to grease your own wheels. I think they sense that. Mm-hmm. So if my dad went to a salon and said, could you perform or do this or give whatever you can? I mean, you know, we had American Airlines. We had Disney on mm-hmm. our board. I went, to grand, I went to school with the grandchildren of Disney, Victoria, Michelle, and wow. Brad. Me personally, going to you know, getting involved with a charity event these days, you know, it would be the same thing. It would be, hey, we help me help my cause. It would never be, hey, can you grease my own wheels? Because I realize all my actions and my behavior has consequences, which is everything I do is seen as a is a measurement or reflection of my father. So I always want to honor my father and and be respectful and use our name to help other people. That's how he, I think he would want me to use our name to help other people. Because real power is helping other people, not using it for your own personal advancement of your own agenda. I think that's the only reason why anybody should have fame, is to use it to help other people. But those are a few and far between these days, as you said. Yeah. I, that's probably a good measure of anybody, uh, and maybe even uh, especially like, celebrities because they they probably are used to people you know like you say kind of greasing their own wheels and trying to use them for things but with I I, with charity they probably get that sense that they can actually do something without somebody you know pay somebody back for like a good good cause rather than a than just somebody advancing their own agenda. Well, you also have to think they're asked throughout the whole year. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like charity. I mean, it's 12 months in a year. So you think in 12 months, you're asked probably three or four times. Mm-hmm. You can only give so much of your time. You can only give so much of your money, your tax write-off, whatever. Mm-hmm. Because you do have other considerations. You have family. You have whatever. And, you know, and if you knew, if, if my dad knew our tournament was every November, right around Thanksgiving time. Well, Thanksgiving time is crazy for a lot of people. So my dad knew, well, if I'm going to ask somebody, I'm going to give them a heads up. I need you for a Saturday night in the sec- second week of November. Mm-hmm. If you can make it, if you can't, I understand. Our golf tournament in Palm Springs for my, my, uh, my school coincided with Frank Sinatra's tournament. So there was two tournaments going on. Ours was more, more, a little bit more boutique, more intimate. So there's always this back and forth. Who's going to come to ours? Who's going to do Sinatra's? And, uh, you know, I mean, the people that we've gotten over the years to co-host a golf tournament with Frankie Avalon. Are you kidding me? I mean, to be on stage with him, just to talk to him, and I got to know him, it was just like, wow. So, um, but... Yeah, it, it's, uh, you have to pick your spots. 
all you can do is say to that person, hey, I need you now, or I need you at this time. Can you make it? If not, you don't put you don't put your relationship on the line and say, well, if you can't make it, we're not friends anymore. Yeah. But you just you just leave it to them. Um, and I find that's the same thing with plugging. You know, if PMRs or somebody who has, has got someone to plug, their agent is more apt to want the client to talk. If there's something going on, they don't want the client to talk until mm-hmm. it's ready. And I have learned that as a booking person, I learned as a child of a celebrity is to be very mindful of that line, that line. Most of the time I get, oh my God, because I haven't seen you in 30 years. How are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm married. I have a child. I live in Vegas. It's like, oh my God. Wow. It's like, I haven't seen you. Like, so it's mostly that. Yeah. So it's always funny. Like Michelle Lee from Outs Landing. I've known her my whole life. Says, Michelle, I know you got the Outs Landing anniversary thing coming up. You want to, I'd love for you to do the radio show of my friend. Uh, no problem, Chris. Just let me know. It's things like that, but. I mean, like you, like you said, uh, I just using your dad's name for using your last name for something good and just talking, you know, just booking people, giving them a heads up. That's, I, I think that's just common courtesy, giving people a heads up. It is. Mm-hmm. Except during the holidays. I mean, people just, yeah. our friend was, uh, we were at Rancho, we were at Western Mission Hills in Palm Springs for many years. We did our tournament for 22 years. Most of the time, it was like the week, the weekend before Thanksgiving. And that's just a crazy time anyway, for anybody. Changing gears. Do you, I mean, in Facebook and social media, I feel like Facebook, especially with certain groups that are pretty active, is a good way for um, new people to find, find um, just different actors and actresses and stuff, shows that they never yes. saw before. Uh, are you finding that, that to be the case? I have corresponded with more people that I knew, George or knew my father, that I've known. Um, Gail O'Grady, who played Donna on Bodano on NYPD Blue. I know, not, I know indirectly, but I, you know, she sees a post of mine. I say, oh my God, you're Chris Corman, you're George Chinza's stepson, you're Harvey Corman's blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know, I did it in NYPD Blue with George. So I go back and forth. And so I become friends with Gail Grady or Pete Arati or mm-hmm. an, an actor from SWAT who I've known. So it's what's where it is. Yeah. It's when they respond. I mean, actors that I had never met, I'll say, oh my God, you were in a movie with my stepfather, my father, and I don't mention their name, and go, oh my God, you're George Simpson's stuff, and son. I said, I was. He said, oh my God, I worked with your father and George. I'm like, so we go back and forth. Yeah. And I'm emailing them to tell them I'm a fan of theirs. And they start talking about me, my dad and George. I'm like, no, no, look, I didn't come to yeah. he preached on myself or my father's. I came to tell you how much a fan I am of yours. So Right. Uh, sometimes they're very gracious about it. Most of the time they're like, I can't believe you're reaching out to me. I'm like, well, like Mike Downey, who's a great LA sports writer, okay? And I emailed him. I said, I'm a big fan of your, as was my father's, because my dad was a big Dodger fan, and we loved your writing. And he said, I can't believe you're emailing me. 
is that because you know how much I loved your father. I said, well, like I appreciate that. I said, you know who I'm married to? I said, Gail Martin. That's D. Martin's daughter. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, like, this is surreal. I'm like, I, I there other, you know, other Gail Martins in this world. Yeah. I didn't put them together. I said, Dean, Dean's daughter wanted to tell you how much we loved your father. I said, well, please take your father home. You know, like there's a guy named Marshall Teague who did a lot of Walker Tech Texas Rangers. He always plays a bad guy. He's in a roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. He plays the head top. He plays the head henchman in, in Roadhouse that Patrick Swayze beats up. I've known Marshall since the 80s. He did a mom's family. And you, you think of him as a tough guy. You get on, you get on, you know, Facebook. Boom. Hey, Chris, how's it going? I'm like, great. I haven't seen you since the 80s. It's like, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Marshall, how you doing? I'm doing great. Um, please, t- you know. So it's, it's, so, it's, it's kind of weird that you think of people that you would not think would be on Facebook who are. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh my God, you're on Facebook? But, you know, like I said, in Facebook, thank God there is private message. Thank God. Um, <laughs> But I would not respond to half the things that are requested to me. And I'll say to people on my Burnett page, I can't really answer that on my Facebook page. That's not appropriate. Right. Uh, even even private, I don't think I want to answer that because I don't know who they are. I don't know if they're calling on behalf of my sister, my mother, mm-hmm. somebody trying to bait me. Right. And unless I know them personally, I'm like, no, I don't think that information is something I need to offer up. It really isn't anybody's business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, people can get really personal on Facebook, and like I, uh, when whenever I reach out to people for the podcast, I'm always like, you can do like I'm just messaging you. I'm not. I I don't. I won't feel hurt if you don't say yes. I would just like uh like a yes or a no. Like you know, I'm not gonna be hurt, and I'm I'm I don't want to offend you. That is not my intention. That's how I do it, and yeah. I'm, I come from the same position of view. Is what's the worst thing you can do? Is you can ask. Mm-hmm. If they say no, you go. Oh, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Most of them will say, "Well, you know, I don't have anything right now to promote, but maybe three months or like Linda Pearl, who played Fonzie's girl, the actress, who was in a movie called The Night the City Screen with Perry Mason, Raymond Burr, and all these actors." And Linda Pearl was married to Desi Arnaz, and I knew Linda Pearl a little bit because she worked with my stepfather in a movie. And she's like, I got a great CD out. And I knew that. But I didn't want to bother Linda. I said, Mrs. Pearl, this is Chris Corman, I'm Harvey Sipperman's son, blah, blah, blah. I just wondering if your CD is coming out. It's like, Chris, he's like, do you have ESP? I said, why? I said, I do have a CD coming out soon. I'm like, mm-hmm. how would you know to call and ask me that? I'm like, I love your CDs. I have your every other one. Yeah. And I'm just curious when your new one's coming out because I'd like to promote your CD on the radio shows of, of hosts that I know. She said, God, because you're so sweet and so kind to offer. I said, well, Linda, I have a great admiration for you as an actress and as a performer. I know I saw your, your YouTube with Donnie Most singing together. I know you two were good friends. It's like, is there nothing you don't know about me, Chris? That... <laughs> Well, I'm sure there is. I won't ask you what those things are because it's none of my business. <laughs> but when I have a great admiration for somebody, I tend to know a lot about them. Yeah. And she's like, oh, you're just so kind, so sweet. Give me four months or give me three more months. Like, I have something for you. Mm-hmm. 
So, if you just let them know, hey, if you got something, let me know. Right. And that's all you can do with the yeah. agent or manager. Yeah, uh, I'm, I mean, all you can really do is ask. And, I mean, if you're genuinely interested, I think that's usually a good conduit for good things to happen. But, you know what the weird is? And I guess it is history. I said this on Saturday to you. And I didn't really think about this. But I just assume that they have a press agent, they have a PR person attached to their record label or their agent, mm-hmm. or they have their own PR people. I'm always shocked that these people would need any help from, you know, me. I mean, who am I to them? I'm Harvey Corman's son. How does my name have any more power than theirs? I know that you're kind of furthering your dad's legacy. Is that is that something where you're starting to see like Me TV pop up with you know now showing like the Carol Burnett show? Are you starting to see more fans come, come like d- rediscover that that work? Well, yeah, God, uh, Carol sold Burnett show to Me TV or her her stepson John Hamilton, who's head of Joe Hamilton Productions, sold BTV the, the 10 years of the Burnett Show, I think about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. I think they were once a night. Mm-hmm. And you also have Mama's Family. So there's either, on uh, any given night, my dad could be on Burnett Show and Mama's Family. Mm-hmm. He could be on Munsters. He could be on Gidget. Yeah. He could, my dad could be on six times in one night and not know it. Yeah. But I've had more people of say, I saw your father on Burnett, I saw him on Perry Mason, I saw him on the Flintstones, I saw him on Gidget, I saw him on the Munsters, I'm like, okay, okay, I get your point. It was a Harvey Corman festival and MeTV tonight, I get your point, thank you. <laughs> with the Burnett show and with Carol's book being out and her, and when she was touring before the, the CV thing happened, Carol was doing her shows all over the country. Right. So she, that elevates the Burnett show. Uh, Mel is still very big in Europe, Mel's name is still big. Burnett, Blaze and Scowls, is always played. The Flintstones is always on MeTV, so... Right. His legacy is because of MeTV and because of people's websites. Right. Uh, I, and it, it, it's amazing to me that that's a, that's, that's a thing because I remember before that, just, you know, a little bit before that, where I was starting to find, like, the Carol Burnett show and... Uh, like George Burns and Jack Benny, and I was starting to find these uh, wonderful people and shows, but I didn't yet have a place where I could find it. So I was just scrounging for anything I could, and there was there was nothing available for me uh, on public TV. And now now it's there almost twenty four seven. I think the whole copyright thing is you can find certain things on on. There's a website called Daily Nation. Oh yeah. Um, they will they will air certain episodes. Right. YouTube will, has a certain copyright issue. These are certain things mm-hmm. that go on there, and I'll say because of copyright issues. Yeah. And all that. So, same thing with uh, theme songs. Mm-hmm. If you go to a certain website, you want to hear a theme song. They'll say Disney owns this rights. Yeah. You cannot right. air. You go to most sites on Facebook, people have, because it's on YouTube, people can just cut and paste everything. See, the chance of getting sued for posting something you're not supposed to post is 
minimal at best. Right. Um, and it's usually cut up in fragments, so you, you'll get you'll have, you'll have to click on six different. Right. You're not going to get all. You're not going to get the whole show all in one thing. Yeah. No, which I find a little exasperating. Uh, <laughs> you have to click on six different. Yeah, I, I think there's, like, a legal reason for that, because, like, yeah, because, like, I know that when I was, uh, uh, when I was first doing YouTube, and I was, like, really, uh, I was not as I am now realizing, like, the copyright laws, but it's just, like, I, I knew that you had, like, ten minutes is what they allowed you to post of anything, really at that time and this was like 10 years ago so i yeah i'm sure it's different even now yeah um what did you what else did you want to to uh cover i i was listening to your podcast with mark malkoff which was really good by the way really like i i enjoy mark's power oh, what, what? I had, I didn't know I didn't know about Mark Malkoff. I oh my gosh, he's amazing! Him. I love him. And, yeah, he called me. Mm-hmm. But, um, well, he found me on Facebook and called me and said, "Would you do a drunk mm-hmm. person?" I thought, "Oh God, okay." Mm-hmm. Well, I have limited amount of I, I have yeah. stories I could tell some to a certain extent about my right. dad and Johnny, and I had met him. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a Christmas present from Johnny Carson. He came to my dad's fiftieth right. birthday party. Um, so I have some relevant connections with Carson. Right. I mean, if people want to know about that, they can check check that out because that's that's good. And I I'm one for I'll always promote his podcast because it's uh, it's a good it's a good podcast. Um, I've interviewed him uh, for my podcast because uh, uh, he's I think he's just amazing. He asked a question, or I I guess you said something. Um, that I don't think he, like, really delved into. Um, your dad helped open a comedy club? Oh, my father was one of the original investors in the improv comedy chain with Bud Friedman back in the 70s. Uh, Jimmy Walker was one of the investors. He's the one who introduced Carson to Leno one night. Andy Coffin from... Taxi just bombed, completely bombed, <laughs> mm. and Leonard went on afterwards. Yeah, and, and afterwards, he issued Jay over to the table, and Johnny said, "You're just really funny, but you're you need to clean up your the rhythms of your transat your transition mm-hmm. to your comedy piece. It has to be cleaner. It has to be funnier. It has to be um, right. your setups have to be better." So he was astounded. So every time Jay does an interview, it's like, oh, Harvey Corman so much good. If it wasn't for Harvey Corman, I would never have gotten The Tonight Show. So my dad was, and there, there is a book out about the history of the improv. Oh, really? And uh, oh. Trey is co- it's co-author with a friend of mine. Uh, and I'm in the book. Um, it's like... Anytime I went to the improv with my father, I would say, <sighs> That's Anytime awesome. you want to come in, Chris, just let me know. I get you know you you have a house account. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so my dad was heavily involved with the improv, and he did uh, many shows uh, night at the improv for A and E. He hosted it a couple of times. Um, 
Right, and like, I had no idea about that. How did, how did he even, like, how did that get started? And Well, Jake, I think, uh, if you watch the Burnett show, 50th anniversary, um, Jay alluded that Bud had gone to Carol, and Carol said, no, you know, I'm not really into that. Harvey knows more about comedians. My father isn't connected with that world. And he helped a lot of comedians and network group comedians. So Bud went to my dad, and my dad said, this could be something, you know, at that time, no one thought, a chain of comedy stores, you had the comedy store where, you know, John Ritter and Ron Williams got started. They hit back then. If you did the improv, you didn't do the comedy store. It was a competition. Oh, interesting. Uh, Shore, his mother, um, who just recently died, Polly Shore's mother, and his father was a famous Borscht Belt comedian, Sammy Shore, Mitzi mm-hmm. Shore. Mm-hmm. So if you did Mitzi's club, you didn't do Bud's club. Oh. That was a rule in the 70s. Well, interesting. The club was supposed to be a rule. Yeah. So my dad was... Um, yeah, have I involved with, um, and I actually helped, I actually, a couple of years ago, I had a friend of mine who was a comedian, and she was trying to get her name in there, and you have to uh, audition for the improv, and mm-hmm. then the coordinator has to put you in the rotation of Sunday nights or whatever, so I said, good luck. I knew the improv was sold to another corporation. I'm calling on behalf of a friend. My father was, oh, Chris, we know who your father is. My God. I said, look, this is one of those times where I'm calling on my dad's name. Mm-hmm. on behalf of another performer. Could you at least kind of get my friend to at least audition for your working coordinator? I'm not asking for anything more. I'm not asking for anything less. If I can get her into the rotation of at least a showcase once in a while at your Santa Monica Pico location, that would be great. So I went back to my friend and I said, I got you to go on a Sunday night to audition or show your thing and they'll put you in rotation and see what happens from there that's all i could do but the moment i said corman there's like oh my god you're, you're harvey's son I'm like, yeah well mm-hmm. your your name is your father's name is deeply embedded in the history of the improv they said well i appreciate that but you know that's that's his name that's not mine and i just left it at that anytime Leno talks about my dad he says oh it wasn't harvey you know in the improv in carson so it's just, again, another one of those things about my dad's name that gave, gave me access. And but we talked about Burnett. We talked about so many things with Mark. But he did his homework. I mean, he brought up yeah. something I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. That I had to scurry to figure out what the hell is he talking about. <laughs> yeah, he, he really uh, does his homework. And uh, I try to. Um, I don't. I don't think I come quite as good as him. And... He, that kid could be a reporter. Like, he could really be an investigative journalist. Yeah, Mark is very <laughs> surprised because um, if, you, if you think about it, to be fair, and you, you're very good yourself, and I didn't, um, one thing I didn't know about Mark was that, because I, I, had, I had not heard a show, I had listened to a couple before mm-hmm. I, I said yes to him because I wouldn't understand what he covers. But he brought up stuff about my dad, McLean, Tim. I'm like, I never saw those episodes because they don't post every Carson on YouTube. Yeah. So it was like, what are you talking about, Mark? Like, yeah. Oh, because my dad did like 17. So many times, yeah. So, but Mark was very respectful 
I did mm-hmm. 140 minutes. I'm surprised Mark didn't fall asleep during some of that. <laughs> you know, I'm always, I mean, I, I can't, I'm always thrilled anytime he wants to talk to me about my father. I just don't yeah. want to bore, I just don't want to bore anybody to death. Right. But Mark, I said, he did his homework. And I was like, damn, Mark. Yeah. I promoted, I promoted his site on mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I posted my thing, and so people who really want to know about my dad and Carson and Leno and mm-hmm. all the Burnett show and Mel Brooks years, if you guys can get through 140 minutes of my fox and my gums, God <laughs> willing, you're not operating machinery or you're on medication at the time, go have at it. And I told Mark time he wants me to do a show, I'd be happy to do it, but, you know, I think 140 minutes, I think we covered. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't cover more than I could. Uh, yeah. possibly fathom covering without you know mm-hmm. he's really I I... he's really good at uh, at what he does and I, I really respect that and uh... I do like Mark a lot mm-hmm. he was very respectful of me as mm-hmm. you were just say hey I love you to do my show I said okay Mark I said what's it all about it's like that you know Carson and I had Don Rickles daughter on and all these people on mm-hmm. and like you want me yeah <laughs> really? I said, your connection to the improv and Carson, Chris, yeah. is like amazing. Like, okay, Mark. I do have a couple, just a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, talking about um, Tim Tim Conway and your dad, they hung out a lot, it seems, um, in Conway's book. He's kind of telling about uh, a bunch of different practical jokes he's played on your dad. Did you ever catch uh, him playing one of those, like, in or any practical joke on your dad? Then no, because he, my dad, toured when mm-hmm. I, um, I was living in San Diego. He toured mm-hmm. for ten years with Tim, so I was not in on, um, most of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I'm not surprised. Hmm. Um, if I, I will tell you how mindful my father is about not being hit with slander suits. If you ever did an interview with, like, um. Nightline came in and talked to my dad and Tim about Carrie Hamilton, Jody's, Carol's daughter dying. Oh. And they came to play from Vegas to do an interview with my father and Tim in this lounge. Mm-hmm. And I was, he said, whatever you do, if you stand in the corner, if you think, I start to say something that's really stupid, clear your throat very subtly. Mm-hmm. Clear your throat. Now tell me to shut up and change the subject. So he would always have me, if he was doing interviews, he would have me be his clearance manager. And what comes out of his face. And so I was always was always mindful to be aware of what he was saying. Tim could say whatever he wanted, but <laughs> my father was very mindful not to hurt or say anything that was mean. But it was to it was paying tribute to Carol and Carrie. But he didn't want to delve into anything that was not appropriate. Right. But I was never, I was never privy to All things that didn't to my father. Okay. Uh, I probably would have said something about that. <laughs> I would not have liked it, but I would have said something. Yeah. But, um, and, I mean, you also talked about um, cracking up a little bit. Did, uh, did your dad ever get mad at Tim for cracking him up? I'm sure my father did, but I think it goes back to what you said, what my wife has said. It made 
they're more accessible to their audience, to the, to the public. That certainly helps your brand long term. I think his only fear was that our people are going to think, I'm not a disciplined performer. I said, well, you are not your disciplined performer with everybody else. So I don't think anybody's going to think that you're not a disciplined performer. It's just that when you were Tim, Tim likes to break the fourth wall and break you up. He hated it because he, by father, was a classically trained performer who believed mm-hmm. you should not upstage the performer or other performers. Mm-hmm. You certainly shouldn't upstage the crew, but you certainly shouldn't try to upstage the writer. Right. And I'll just say that as much as the writers loved what my father and Tim brought to their writing, I think if the writing is really good, you shouldn't have to embellish or go off script. If the writing is very good, if the writing is bad, then okay, the writer doesn't care. It saves their writing. Yeah. But my dad, my dad were alive today, he'd probably tell you he hated it. <laughs> um, and all the people have yeah. uh, com- communicated the same feelings from that I have. Mm-hmm. But the point is that if it made my father more lovable or accessible to people, yeah, I guess that's more, that's more important than whatever personal feelings I have towards that issue. I think my dad's work with Mel and Carol stand out more for me than anything my dad and Tim did. But that's just me. Yeah. Um. So, kind of wrapping things up, is there anything that you want to, any last words you want to say, uh, anything you want to promote or anything like that? Well, if I had to say anything about my father, even if he had not been my father, he would probably still would have been my favorite performer. He was an exceptional father, and because he always celebrated my disability as a blessing and not a curse, the best part of him being my father was that he got to see my wife, got to meet, have my oldest grandchild, which is the greatest thing on earth for me. And he's like you grew up with a severe entrance into this world that wasn't great, birth defect. And to 35 years later, have your father hold your grandson and meet your wife is was the greatest moment in my life. So I would say that, again, if my father was not my father. So, yeah, I would say to having been the father that he was, an exceptional father, grandfather, father-in-law, is the greatest thing I can say about him. Well said, yeah. That is very special to have. I'm glad that uh, you're, you got to experience all of that. Thank you, Ron. That's, um, that's, that's the reason why I talk about him, because I want people to know there was two sides to him. Mm-hmm. And that's how I would want him to be remembered. Yeah. Wow, that that that's amazing. I think I'm out of questions. I feel like uh, <laughs> any questions that I do have left, I feel like they're, they're not original. Well, Mark and I did an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. And um, I did, uh, there's a website called uh, Wilder Ride. I, I was listening to that. Um, I listened to one of them. How many interviews did you do with them? 
I did four days. Okay, because I, I could only get one of them. My uh, my phone was being weird, so I only could get one of them to play. But it w- it was pretty fantastic. It was a good it, it was a good pod podcast. It's broken down. It's like episode 80, 88 to ninety one. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go on. Um, their website you can find the other pages <laughs> i know i know interviews can be i know they can be draining um yeah so i i thank you so much for this you're welcome hope i'm glad i hope it comes all out together and when you're ready to um post it i will post it on my page we're a little late so good night folks hello please leave a review a rating a message just whatever you can on whatever app you're using to listen to this. It really helps. I know from personal experience. And I really thank you for listening. I may not have a large audience because, well, loving the classics is kind of a niche thing. But I don't want these classics to die out. And that is why I need your help. Please like and share. This has been a Hope Sears presentation, darling.